Welcome to the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stahm. All right, welcome to our podcast. My name is Nasser Pasha. And I'm Matt Staub, two attorneys here with Pasha Law. This is where we cover business in the news with our legal twist. And today we're covering the ultimate legal breakdown of online reviews, something that we've dealt with a ton with our client businesses, right? Yeah, probably more than I was expecting to ever, but it's really become a... We have had clients where that's been the only thing that's been an issue, but even for the clients that we do a lot of things for, it seems to be popping up with them as well. And and I'm sure most people have, if they haven't left their own reviews, they've at least used something like a Yelp or Google reviews to at least look into something such as a restaurant or something else like that. Yeah, and I think early on in the internet, especially with the online reviews, most of the issues we're dealing with businesses that, that deal with consumers, but now even B2B businesses, service industry, pretty much everybody has some kind of online profile where people can leave reviews, whether it's by choice or not. Sometimes profiles get created whether you like it or not. Right. I've talked to a lot of different business owners who were confused how their Yelp pages even showed up. I, I didn't create this. I was like, well, it doesn't really matter. It's like, well, you can't create my own page. It's like, well, you know, good luck with that <laughs> argument to Yelp. Yeah. Yeah. And so Yelp is a great example of online reviews because, and, and in fact, I would say that that's 80% of our, our business of people complaining about Yelp reviews and then 20% everything else. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that's, it's one of the most popular ones, especially, I think, in particular, it has a negative review on Yelp seems to have the most impact. But also there's ripoff report. I know if you get a bad review on ripoff report, depending upon how strong you are on the web, that can come up pretty high on the search engines if they search your business. Yeah, of course it depends on the business. Sometimes you type in a business's name, it might be a whole bunch of things, and then their Yelp page. I mean, if, if you type the name the right fashion it'll pop up if you have a google business page it'll pop up on the right reviews right there but yeah like you said ripoff report that can pop up really high on a search engine it's never anything good ripoff reports only posting bad things so it's that's going to be some bad news for your business and what's different about ripoff report versus yelp on google especially ripoff report in their title tags they'll put the actual title of the review and so unlike Yelp, where it may show how many stars, et cetera, which may be negative, but if they have something scathing like, oh, this business is a fraud or a fraudulent or whatever, that will be what it says in the actual Google result, which can be very, very damaging. But is it enough just to be a bad review to have legal action? Probably not. I mean, a true review that is bad has very little recourse, actually. Yeah, to me, there's different levels of quote-unquote bad reviews or one-star reviews. You have the ones that are, perfect example, go to a restaurant, it was a terrible experience, bad service, food was bad. If you go on there and write completely truthful things about that experience, that's just a legitimate bad review. And then there's ones where someone might leave a review, it's more they're opinion-based or they just didn't like the ambiance of a restaurant or something to that effect. Now, it's not really a factual thing. It's just their opinion, They're, and they leave a bad review for that. I've seen that, too. And then, of course, you have kind of the all-encompassing one, and this is what we're going to get to, but the, the review that leaves statements of fact that are false. So basically, you're going on there saying statements 
that are definitely false, that are not opinions. Those are gonna be the ones that some action can be taken on because those fall under defamation. Yeah, and defamation, there's a reason why defamation is defined that way and where they draw the line. And that line is drawn in connection with freedom of speech. And so the First Amendment draws that line between, okay, what is allowed speech and what is not allowed speech? And defamation is just that, that we're willing to protect speech that is a matter of opinion. But if you're stating a statement of fact that's not true, that's where we give plaintiffs some recourse against defendants. Exactly. So that's where all analysis starts. You got to, if you get a bad review for your business, the first thing to do is to read the review and determine whether you even have a cause of action. Um, And from there, let's say you do then you kind of run through this step-by-step process of, of how to deal with it. So I think the first thing to do is determine whether determine what the response is in, for the actual review, meaning do you want to write something? Like in Yelp, for example, you have the opportunity to respond in ripoff report too. Do you want to respond to the review or do you not? And if not, do you want to take some other course of action? I mean, I think oftentimes or almost every time, at least I tell business owners to not respond to the review. Sometimes they've already done so and made it worse. But I think that's the first step. It, we Don't just jump in and write something and try to plead your case. You need to step back a second and take some time and think about the proper response. And that might be counterintuitive. In fact, that's often counter advice to a lot of marketers or reputation management companies because they definitely think that there is a positive aspect of putting your position out there. And you've seen like if you ever have a, whether it's on TripAdvisor or Yelp, you'll have restaurants that respond to even solid criticism. And even where it's kind of outrageous, they have some kind of response. And I'm not saying that's not okay. There's definitely a reason, a valid argument to do it that way. What we're talking about is don't be the owner that has a knee-jerk reaction because you're personally involved in this situation and you make matters worse. And we've seen it a hundred times. In fact, in worst case scenarios, the response ends up being more of a story than the actual bad review. And we've, you know, we've talked about that in the past as well. Definitely. And so to me, there's only a few times when it makes sense to leave or to have a response. I think what the one you just said of if it's a truly factual review that's just based on a bad experience they had, you know, you might offer an opportunity for them to reach out to you. I, I've seen that. I think that's a good way to go about it. Or, you know, th- we'll get into more detail, but sometimes if you have to go the route of trying to subpoena the review site and determine who this person is, sometimes you have to write a response before they'll comply with the subpoena. We'll, we'll talk about that in particular. But yeah, most of the time, our advice is going to be contrary to or counter to what reputation management companies, et cetera, are going to say, because we want to take a step back and, you know, go another route. Yeah, which is natural because, you know, when you're coming to us, it's at, at a point where the review is so damaging that it's affecting your business or you anticipate that it'll affect your business. And number two, you feel that this person is being blatantly false in their review. And that's usually an indication that you being nice to them is not going to end a result. And so after we review the response and that meets that criteria, then going to a law firm like ours or whoever else to help you guide you through the next step is going to be important. And if you've already responded or engaged with the reviewer 
it actually may affect the chances of success in actually removing the reviews. Because when we send our cease and desist letters, which we'll talk about in a second, a majority of the time people remove the reviews. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason for that. And, you know, we can talk about that in a second. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I've dealt with the the former of that of somebody who you see they get a bad review the business owner responds and i've seen ones that are even worse than the bad reviews and they're disclosing private or confidential information it's just really bad and so yeah this is the analysis to go through one determine that it is defamatory okay so we've done that to me the next step is do we know who this person is much easier said than done if you do like you just alluded to the cease and desist letter that's that's one way to go about it but we got to determine if we know who this person is, or at least at the beginning, if there's reasonable certainty or a pretty good idea of who this person is, because that's going to dictate the route that's going to need to be taken. Yeah. And if we don't know who they are, then there's one option. And if we do know who they are, there's another option. So let's talk about if you know who the reviewer is, then usually the first step is to send a cease and desist. And any lawyer can draft one of these, like I said, I mean, just to kind of brag about ourselves, we really dive into the details of the review and the business to have an understanding to make our our letter as effective as possible. We have a reputation as a firm that we actually go after reviewers when it makes sense. And so because of that reputation, usually reviewers do listen to us, again, the majority of the time, and those that don't end up being forced to do so one way or another. Right. And you know, we're not going to send a cease and desist if there's no merit behind it. I mean, it's sometimes people ask us to, and like I said, there has to be some grounds to do it. There has to be, you know, you have to be able to prove some sort of defamation or reasonable belief that there is. And and that's what makes this effective. If we were to take every single case, then we would lose our credibility and it wouldn't make our letters as effective. Right. I mean, I've turned down handfuls of people that wanted to, to go that route and to do something. And I just told them, look, it's, I mean, what they wrote, if it's true. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's there's not much you can do. I mean, because one defense, probably the biggest defense to defamation is truth. And that's so right. If, if the review is true, no matter how bad it is, I mean, it's not defamation. That's, that's as simple as it gets. Going back to the defamation, sometimes people get confused with the difference between a matter of opinion or a statement of opinion and statement of fact. And just to kind of quickly give an example of that, to exaggerate a little bit, if I say that this restaurant is not not good, it's bad, right? Or the owner is a jerk or the waitresses are rude. These are all very kind of opinionated related statements. Now, I'm not saying an opinion by itself is not actionable because sometimes they are if they imply some kind of underlying fact that's not true. Mm-hmm. And so a clear example of a statement of fact is instead of saying that the waitress is rude, I would say the waitress threw water in my face, right? And so that would be the difference. Or if I say that the business owners are corrupt and they, they're cheating, that may actually have an implication that they're actually breaking the law, even though that's on the side of the opinion, but it may be indication that there's an underlying fact that is also not true. Yeah, and a lot of times it kind of is in that gray area. But so, like you said, we, we have some, some backing to these letters. And, and really the reason we often start with this or to go this route is for anyone that's been involved in a lawsuit, I mean, once a lawsuit is filed, it's going to get much more expensive for the uh, business owner because we just don't know what direction it's going to go. Let's say we have the situation where 
we've tried other things, nothing works. Really what's left is to file a lawsuit. You know, that's, I don't like to say it's the last option, but that's really kind of the, to us, or at least to me, I think it's the last line of defense, but it's, it's there. And you have to be careful. If you're pulling that trigger, of course, there's costs involved. But a good example is, in just in Houston, my hometown here, there was a law firm that actually sued a client because of some one-star review. Now, a law firm, they know what the definition of defamation is, et cetera. And long story short is not only did they lose the lawsuit, but the judge actually made a award of the defendant, the, the former client, attorney's fees. And I don't know how much it was, but it was enough, the fact that they lost and now they actually owe money. And so there's no guarantee to all this. That's why competent attorneys that just don't push you into spending money that might be not gotten back. And then not only that, you actually may lose money because, and not only that, not everyone wants to sue their customers. There are real repercussions, even if you're right in suing your customers, right? Yeah. And we're, we're talking about the legal side of things, but exactly what you just said, it's some of this is a public relations argument as well. I mean, we don't, even if you have a great case, does it always make sense to, you know, actually file a lawsuit against one of your, your customers? Cause then it's just going to be out there and people say, well, I don't know if I want to do business with them because they're just going to sue me. You know, I'm, I'm just their customer. They're going to sue me. I, that's not what I want to do. And of course, it depends on the the type of business and all that. But, you know, like, just going to what you just said, there is strategy involved in whether to file the lawsuit or not. I mean, you said in Texas, I know in Illinois, particularly in California, there's these tools in the defendant's tool belt they can use to basically not quash, but more or less that's what is this lawsuit before it even gets to the point. And like you said, there's attorney's fees, sanctions that could be involved in this case in Houston, 27 grand in attorney's fees for the defendant here. And they didn't even get to the heart of the actual defamation. I mean, I guess they did indirectly, but yeah. you know, this was just at the beginning. So you can't just file, you can't just immediately file a lawsuit and work it out from there. And there's really, in, at least in California, it's not really backing out of of these either. If the defendant turns around and files this motion against you, so it is careful analysis. It is a very just like at the beginning. Even though you might want to respond to them, you know, to the review. You're gonna. It's the same thing for filing a lawsuit. You want to think before acting. And I think what you're referring to is the anti-slap motion. And not every state has it, and to a certain degree, maybe more effective than others. But yeah, that's it's definitely a good to note. Again, not every attorney is going to be competent enough, or unless they're experienced in this area, specifically in defamation law, to be able to go through this analysis. Now, when you sue customers, yeah, you can sue them for money damages that damages that have been caused against your business to your reputation. But typically what most businesses are seeking is just to have the review taken down. A lot of times customers, clients, no one's perfect. And oftentimes these customers are coming from a place where they did have a bad experience, but because they're their bad experience, they become a little vicious and, and start exaggerating and going beyond just what's true and start making defamatory remarks. But what happens if even through a lawsuit, you can't get the review taken down? And that happens. A good example is Ripoff Report. Ripoff Report uses, they basically take advantage of, in my humble opinion, a statute that was passed a while ago, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And we've talked about this in the past many times. And what this basically says is that 
internet websites like Facebook, Ripoff Report, that rely upon other people and Yelp and other people's content that other third parties that are placing the content there, they are not held responsible for that content to a certain degree. Generally, they have immunity. So in other words, again, there's always exceptions, but generally if someone posts a defamatory statement on Ripoff Report, Ripoff Report will fight tooth and nail to prevent it being taken down. And they say they've never lost a case, and I'm not sure if that's still true or not. I'm sure they have by now. There's some exceptions, I'm sure, but I, I don't know that for a fact. And so oftentimes, the result is not taking the review down from Ripoff Report, because even as a user, when you draft the complaint, you can't even take it down if you wanted to. It's there permanently. You can actually get it removed and de-indexed from Google. And that's been an effective way by many law firms, including ours, to get those reviews uh, removed. Yeah, and even in those situations, you should go through and look to see what Ripoff Report writes on on the site. They just kind of belittle the legal process, and it's. Uh, I wonder if we can we can probably find one to post maybe to to show people. I don't know. Well, we can link to it at least. Yeah, that's that's what I meant. Is there? I what I describe to people with them is they're a whole different animal. I mean, it's just because they refuse to really do anything, and they I alluded to it before their subpoena process is much more burdensome than any other any other site um, that I've dealt with and so it's uh, it's not really that fun to deal with them um, but it's, it's doable like you said I mean there's there's always remedies to be sought by a you know, defamed business or person and what's crazy is that they make money off of this they make money off of this statute because when people leave bad reviews and they again fight vehemently and and anyone that tries to take it down, and because of that statute, they're able to protect themselves. They actually charge, I don't know what they're calling it these days, but, and I don't want to defame them because, you know, I'm, I'm intelligent in that way <laughs> because they're, they're very litigious. But nonetheless, they have some kind of program where you pay money. And my understanding is that the ultimate result is that, you know, that title tag that I alluded in the very beginning, it somehow gets changed. And you get into some kind of program or whatever, but whatever the, whatever it is, somehow it ends up being more beneficial. But it's very expensive and very expensive for small businesses. Most small businesses can't afford uh, whatever the payment is. I, I remember the last time I checked, it was in, definitely in the thousands of dollars, right? Yeah, I, and I thought it was, I just spoke to somebody about this. I thought it was ongoing too. I mean, I thought it was- a, uh, uh, Not, there, not there's, even- There's an upfront fee, to like set things up and then you pay an ongoing whatever. So it's- it's, it's highway robbery. I mean, they're, they're, they're really holding the hostage, especially if it's a defamatory statement. Because here's the thing, even if it's a, a clearly a lie, that means that they can take advantage of this. And there, you know, there's something inherently wrong with that for sure. But it's not to say that that's your only option, that you can just pay the ransom. There's other ways to do it. And for example, if you get a court order, if it's drafted correctly, and this is a key point because I've seen court orders that aren't drafted correctly because the lawyer's may have made a mistake here or there, uh, but if you draft it correctly, you can get it removed off of Google, assuming that you're able to prove defamation, there are many methods, uh, and you can get it removed. Now, what Ripoff Report has done is that since you have to identify the URL of the actual website in the lawsuit for Google to remove it, Ripoff Report will actually change the URL of the website with a bad review in order to get around Google indexing. 
And so now Google actually, this is a more recent thing and only in the last six months or so that I've, I personally have seen it. They may, they may have been doing it before then, but Google is actually has responded and they will still take it down if your judgment is drafted well enough in the sense that if it's such the case that it's just one specific URL and, and it's kind of a narrow vision, then you may have some problems because Google will not comply with the court order unless it's properly drafted. And they do review it. It's hand reviewed. In fact, once you put it in, it'll actually take a number of days for them to actually process it because it's it's done by their legal team. Fun stuff. Well, let's go on the other side of the coin. We, we talked about when you can identify who this the bad reviewer is. What about in the case of the anonymous reviewer? It's a it's a different Animal. different procedure at that point. Yeah, that's tough. Uh, if you do not know who they are, then it's like, okay, who do you sue? Who do you send a letter to? And of course, a lot of these anonymous reviews are sometimes your competitors. Yeah. They could be, you know, your next door neighbor that hates you. Uh, they, you know, could be an ex girlfriend or boyfriend. I mean, it could be anybody that has a some gripe against you. And yeah. and you know, what can you do? Yeah, and I've seen all of those typically especially when they have specific facts of their experience, the business is going to know whether it was a real person or not. So it's usually somebody that just doesn't like you or a competitor or a former employee. That seems to be what most of them are. And the thing is, you can post, like on Yelp, for example, you can post anonymously. I mean, I, re- I guess on all these sites, you can, yeah. you can you make can up a name. Make and... up a name. With Yelp, you do need like a first name and last initial, but ripoff yeah. report, you can write what, you know, whatever. Our, our firm had one from a opposing party back in the days when we were representing homeowners who were defrauded by a diff- some various loan modification companies, one of them actually got so upset at us that let's start leaving, like some unbelievable reviews, of course, but like, and we got it removed, of course. You know, that, that's what happens. Mm-hmm. So with this, like you said, we, if we can't, if it's anonymous, we can't identify, I mean, really what you're left with is filing a lawsuit and hoping that you can determine who this person is by subpoenaing the, subpoenaing the site. Like as we were saying before, ripoff report makes you go through their own process. There, I mean, there's rules. Yelp, for example, has their own rules and going about it as well. But just drafting and serving the subpoena is easier said than done. Yeah, and there's a mixed level of results on that depending upon who you're subpoenaing. The ripoff report, admittedly, is probably the most difficult, but other companies like Yelp have uh, fought pretty hard as well to keep their users anonymous when it's in their favor, and there's been mixed court results in that regard. And so it's very fact-specific, very jurisdiction-specific, and is, again, admittedly, a very tough nut to crack. But but, one thing that's interesting, we've been relatively successful of, despite the anonymity of certain reviews of being able to uncover the identity with various, you, you know, with our various investigative tools. I mean, some, sometimes it's, I got to admit, it's a little bit of luck, you know? Yeah. No, it can be. And, you know, you, you kind of hope that you're able to determine it through, through one of those avenues. I mean, if not, you're looking at, like, for example, there's this case of this money manager in Manhattan basically went through the same thing as, person is unidentified person was blasting them with these bad reviews that were defamatory they were actually able to subpoena and get the isp addresses of the person but it didn't really tell them much yeah and sometimes ip addresses is not are not enough even if even if you know the exact household that it was in 
that may not be enough in a court of law for proof. You mean you need some kind of supporting evidence, or if especially if it's like at a public, you know, a public Wi-Fi or something like that, you're even less likely to have anything. So what about this? And this is this is like the conversation I have with business owners. What do I want to do now? I've got these bad reviews that I'm going to go back and to my contracts and add the add some sort of provision in there that people can't leave bad reviews about me. Uh, is that going to solve the problem? <laughs> it, you know, it's a it's it's becoming more of a. I mean, almost. I, I we get this question all the time. Yeah. And it's called a non disparagement clause, and. It, for the most part, it, it, it depends who, which contract you're putting it in and what kind of contract. Because there are federal statutes and state statutes that basically prohibit these kinds of uh, clauses. And what they basically say, some there's different variations of non-disparagement clauses, but to kind of dumb it down a little bit, make it simplified at least, is it basically says, during the term of the agreement and thereafter, either party, usually it's both either party, will not disparage or speak publicly in a negative fashion about the other party. You know, sometimes it's general, sometimes it's specific. And that's called a non-disparagement clause, and sometimes that's prohibited. Yeah, and a couple of things with this. I mean, it's, there's state laws, like California is, there's this pretty, pretty strict, there's also one that kind of, it's federal, right? Yeah, the federal law is, it's, it's strict if it meets the requirements. There's a federal law that was passed. Uh, it's called the Act of Review Fairness Act of 2016, but I think it went effective after March of 2017 this year. March, looks like March 14th. And these are for contracts that are called form contracts. Now, form contracts under the statute has its own definition, but these are contracts, you know, think about contracts that the ones that no one read, usually consumer-based, where there's not really any opportunity or meaningful opportunity for you to negotiate the contract. And those are the contracts where if you put a non-disparagement clause, it's it's prohibited. Also, in non-disparagement clauses, the reason why it's it's often scrutinized, even without a statute, is because it may be a it, it may fly in the face of the First Amendment especially when it comes to certain protected speech with employees. So there's certain types of people that you should be very concerned about putting any non-disparagement. That's employees. If you are a B2C company, and especially if you're a large company and you have, and with consumers, be careful with that. But oftentimes when you have non-disparagement clauses with other vendors or other partners and these types of agreements, there's usually a less restriction in that regard. So I don't want to make it seem like non-disparagement clauses are illegal and inappropriate. That's definitely not the case, but there's a certain slice of the pie that it is prohibited. Yeah, and the other thing I was going to say if these two are they're still relatively new. So it's when it's there's you know, California in particular, it's it's defined in a broad way or it's spelled out in a broad way. So we haven't really seen these play through the courts enough or any idea to how to fully interpret them. Absolutely. And so I, I think that, I don't know, I'm just trying to think, we, I mean, we covered a lot. And usually when we do these podcasts, I mean, a lot of you have been listening for a while now, for a number of years, and I appreciate, we definitely appreciate that. As you guys know, I mean, we do this for just for fun, and we very rarely kind of promote our own services. 
But this is, I just got to say, just really quick, just to kind of give, give a plug. This is an area for which we have a lot of experience in and a lot of other law firms do not. And so it does kind of differentiate us a little bit. Typically, what we do is represent businesses. We provide general counsel services to them. But this is a very specific area that we do have a lot of passion for because we understand very well the impact that a negative review can have on a business, especially if you're a restaurant or even a any kind of service industry that has great reviews on Yelp. Even a few really, even one bad review that it's not true that, of course, when these when these bad reviews that are false, when they're made, they make it as believable as possible because they know that the impact that it has. And so sometimes people reading it, even your friends and your family, they may not know that it's actually not true unless you know, you're know you able to respond accordingly, like we discussed earlier, or better yet, just get it removed. And sometimes both is the answer as well. Yeah, and I, one other thing I just thought of is a common reaction or, or what someone wants to do is say, oh, I just want to, the only thing they want to do is sue Yelp. <laughs> yeah, and that's every, I forgot about that. Yeah, I, which I need to address that too. It's not going to work. And they, they've usually said like, oh, I saw some, some lawsuit where so this person in Virginia, I think that's where the case, so this is one that always gets brought up of the the person with the rugs, I think in Virginia. Yeah. It's like, well, I saw this and they didn't win, but they sued Yelp, blah, blah, blah. Yelp's, prote- I mean, they're protected. It, it's one thing if they get a court order and they don't abide by it, but if somebody complains to them that the review this review is defamatory, Yelp's covered under, I mean, first of all, they, they really do have no way of telling Ninety nine percent of the time, well, it's true or not. whether it's true or not, so not going to take sides. And two, you know, they're covered under the law, so. and and they do have that kind of, they do have that algorithm that filters reviews. But you know, a lot of people complain it filters good reviews, and they say it's an algorithm that we don't really touch. But you know, and there's also allegations against Yelp for them basically extorting businesses to get them the reviews change and so forth. And people have tried doing that. I still haven't seen a really successful case where they actually approve that. I've heard it and many times from businesses and clients, and but I've just seen how cases have panned out. It just have, I haven't really seen a really great case where they were able to prove that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So what I always tell people is, look, at, at this stage, it's not worth your time or your money to, no. to sue them. So we'll, we'll see what happens down the road. Let someone else do that, you know, with but, deep pockets. Yeah, even if somebody finally is able to do it, you know, you'll, they'll figure out a way to, yeah. to get around it. So. Exactly. It's, <laughs> it's not it's not worth your time. And, in fact, I'm just thinking about what usually marketers tell us is, like, you, you have to play the game. Online reviews are part of your brand and part of your marketing strategy. And if you spend your time just kind of suing everybody, and it's not a valuable part of your business plan. Exactly. All right. Well, by the way, we're, we're both in San Diego. We are. We forgot to mention that in the beginning, yeah. but recording the first time, not the first time, but recording the first time in a while in person. In person, so, yeah. At yeah. least, yeah, quite some time. At least, At least a week. Oh, oh, I was going to say. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, we're spending too much time with each other. Well, yeah, anyway. Still the same thought of mine. So. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. And again, thanks for listening. And please review our podcast. We haven't asked that in a while on iTunes. Leave comments. And of course, Follow us on all our social media, which is just exploding nowadays, especially on Instagram, at Pasha Law, right? Yeah. All right. Uh, Keep it sound. Keep it smooth. This has been the Legally Sound Smart Business Show with your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Staub. The Legally Sound Smart Business Show is your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. 
Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast that is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date, and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening or submitting questions to the podcast. The podcast does not constitute legal advice, but rather is offered only for general informational and educational purposes. You should not act or rely on any information in the podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney. The opinions expressed in the podcast reflect the views of those individuals and do not necessarily represent the views of any other individual or business. For more information about the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, visit LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com.